So this morning what we're doing is starting again, we're uh, resuming, picking up in the book of Mark, so I encourage you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 11, and uh, if you don't have one, there ought to be some laying about next to you somewhere. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, feel free to take that one too, um, if, uh, if you need one. Those are for your enjoyment. So um, let's go ahead and read the passage. We're going to be in Mark 11. Verses 12 to 25, and then we'll get into it after we read. On the following day, when they, that is the disciples and Jesus, came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus is hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying to them, It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, The fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown to the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be done for you. And whatever you Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So as we continue in the book of Mark, we run into a little bit of an odd place today. Uh, and if you, uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Pastor Casey preached the last section on the book of Mark, um, it was the triumphal entry. And if you uh, grew up in church or you're familiar with that story, it's kind of the, the time when, uh, if, if you were part of any kind of VBS or church program as a kid growing up like me, this is kind of a fun time because you get to put on uh, some, uh, the church we were at at the time had a robe, like an ancient Near Eastern closet for different events like that. So you had robes and you put stuff on and you might have a camel if you're a really um, well-to-do church that come in or animals or something. Uh, but it was this time when everyone knew, we don't have any camels here, by the way, so I guess that doesn't qualify us, but um, it, was, it was a time when you're looking forward to a monumental aspect, especially in the book of Mark here. Um, we see in, in the book of Mark, Mark moves, if you're not too familiar with the Gospels, he's the shortest of all of them, and he moves very quickly. Uh, he wants to highlight Jesus' action and power. Uh, his majesty, that as he moves through, you, you, it's almost breathtaking. He uses a term immediately, again and again and again. And he does that 
to push forward this, uh, this scene of, of Jesus being laser-focused to go to the cross, die, and rise again. And no gospel is as clear about that as Mark. None is as succinct. But when we get here in Mark, something a little bit strange happens, and he, he will slow down just a little bit. So you can catch your breath this morning. Um, but in, in the section that we have, verses 12 and 25, something a little strange happens, and it happens because of verse 11. As Pastor Casey mentioned a couple weeks ago, Jesus is the king that everybody needs, but not everybody wants. Uh, there's this expectation problem with Jesus. As he comes on the scene, people have all sorts of expectations, uh, but he defies them to some degree. And, uh, and as he does that, he's, he's really setting himself up for a statement. And we'll see it in verse 22. Uh, when he responds to Peter, have faith in God, this puzzling statement. Uh, and Jesus does some puzzling things here. That as he's, Mark talks about him, uh, you see a, a character, you see a man who does things that are unexpected. And uh, he's doing it for a reason, though. And the reason that we're going to kind of square on this morning to focus at the, the question that we're going to have is about faith. So here's our main question for this morning. What does it mean to have faith in God. When Jesus gives this unexpected reply to Peter, he has something in his mind, and it relates to everything that has just happened. But it's hard to see. So what does it mean to have faith in God? Now, depending on the background that you come from, faith is going to have all sorts of meanings. Faith in God, probably more. But today, we get at least three answers to that question in the text. And we'll just kind of walk through line by line, and, and pick them out. Um, but the first thing that we see here in verse 11 is that Jesus goes to the temple, which is what you would expect, comes in riding on a donkey, setting himself up as king, rides to the temple. If, uh, if, if you wanted to be king in the Old Testament all the way through, the first thing you do, go to the temple. Establish your right as king. That's what we see Jesus do. But then he looks around and leaves. It's very anticlimactic. If you're reading, you're like, all right, Jesus is coming to town. He's, gonna, he's finally going to do it. He's going to put us on top. We're going to be a part of his, his royal entourage, his counselors, his advisors, as if Jesus needs counselors, especially these 12 bumbling idiots. And, uh, and it doesn't happen. He looks around at the temple and leaves. And it, it gives us attention in the narrative. What is happening? This is not who you would expect. And having faith in God would first of all mean this, knowing him as he is. When you see Jesus, he's going to be unpredictable. And we see this in verses 12 to 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, which I'm all for, a fully human Jesus who's hungry, thirsty, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Uh, now, what is going on here? Jesus certainly is unpredictable. He's, he's not doing what everyone expects by coming into Jerusalem to set himself up as king. He does go to the temple the next day, uh, and on the way, he curses the fig tree. Why? Seemingly unrelated. Makes no sense. 
The first thing to see is Jesus is unpredictable. But that just because he's unpredictable doesn't mean it's without purpose. The things that he's doing are without purpose. Some commentators take this, uh, and honestly, it was confusing for me the past couple of weeks. So if you're confused and having a hard time, don't, don't feel bad. Uh, what's going on? Some commentators take this and say, well, pretty much Jesus was just hangry, right? Uh, like, I mean, you know how it is, especially in the morning, maybe you wake up and, and maybe there's a proverb, which is one of my favorites, which tells you not to greet anybody in the morning with a loud voice because it's considered a curse, right? The Bible's very practical. Um, and so here, Jesus, he's just, maybe he's just having a bad day. He's just starting off. He's got a lot going on, and he's hungry, and he wants some food, and he's angry because he, he doesn't get it. Um, other commentators would say that this is a waste of divine power. For whatever reason, Jesus could have, he, he cursed the fig tree, but he could have done something else. What if you just took that power, Jesus, and like used it to heal someone else? Uh, people have a problem with this. But just because he's unpredictable doesn't mean it's without purpose. So what's happening? Jesus, on the way into Jerusalem to the temple that he just saw the night before, is going to make an object lesson out of this fig tree. He's going to come to it, and he's going to curse it as a way of teaching the disciples what's about to happen. What's about to happen is Jesus is going to the temple, and he's looking for something. He's looking for faith, real faith, real true worship. And he's not going to find it. So the fig tree here represents for his disciples and for us false religion. Something that would promote itself as godly, but in fact it's not. You notice when Jesus comes to the fig tree or sees it in the distance, he sees it has leaves. And so he would say, oh, it would have fruit. But at the same time, Mark tells us that it's not the season for figs. And I feel like I got a bachelor's degree in, uh, in fig trees trying to figure this out. But um, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, in that area, you have fig trees. And fig trees really produce fruit two times of year. The first would be in the fall, which is what normally people think of when they think of fig trees and the fruit. It would be something that's delicious and more bountiful. But that happens in the fall. In the spring, when... These trees put out their leaves. They put out their leaves to say there's growth in late spring, and they would produce some smaller type of fruit, and uh, people would still be able to eat them, smaller nodules that wouldn't be so tasty, but at least you can eat them and get some nourishment from them. And so this is a time when Jesus goes to a tree, and he says, I'm hungry, I need some nourishment, especially for what he's about to do, and there's nothing. It's barren. And Jesus will curse the fig tree because it's barren. So Jesus is not just being hangry here. He's teaching the disciples a lesson about true worship, about really having faith in him. And this gets to um, another kind of aspect of Jesus here, that to know him as he is, you don't only have to know he's unpredictable, which I wonder if your Jesus is unpredictable, as a side note. Does he contradict you? That's a good indication he's the real Jesus. But He's also king. You see, in the Old Testament, one of the things that, that marked a king off from everybody else was their ability to discern heart motives. You see this with King Solomon, wisest king. 
uh, what, you know, the first story that he's really known for is that he could discern somebody's heart motive and demonstrate it to other people. And Proverbs 20, verse 8 would say it this way, that the king, uh, for him being able to discern heart motives, it would, be, it would be like this. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with their eyes. Now, you probably haven't talked about winnowing recently, but uh, if you don't know what winnowing is, it's a way of separating the valuable from the, the trash, the wheat from the chaff. And Proverbs will say that a king does this with his eyes, that he, he's so in tune and he has so much authority that he's able to figure out the, real, all the heart motives behind why you do what you do and make judgments accordingly that are just. So Jesus is a king. Mark sets Jesus off as a king here. He's able to see what's going on beneath the surface. And what's going on beneath the surface? We see with the Jews here as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what did they expect of him? They expected him to be somebody who was a military messiah, who would put them back on top as a nation, give them political domination, security, power, cultural position. That's what the Jews expected of Jesus, that he's going to come, make everything right, get this Roman government off our backs, and finally we'll be back in power. That's one expectation of Jesus, and I'm sure that we all have our own, undoubtedly. Uh, I think pretty common in our area is to have an expectation of Jesus that would be um, kind of bland, that he's just a nice guy, maybe one path of many, maybe a good counselor, but who is he really? We think that Jesus often is somebody who just fixes our problems sometimes. Maybe if you ask him really nice, he'll help you out. If you pray to him, maybe he'll give you money, comfort, ease, security, autonomy, let you do whatever you want, retirement. But this is not who Jesus is. Jesus is different than the Jews thought and then we think. Mark is trying to tell us that Jesus is the coming king. He has higher aspirations. He has a greater agenda than just helping us out with our small little problems, being political or anything else. Jesus is the coming king who's coming to set all things right. And what kind of thing is right? Well, we can see as we continue uh, about the fig tree explanation here. Uh, the fig tree is a parable that Jesus uses elsewhere in the Gospels. In Luke 13, he would say this about the fig tree, about Israel, talking about Israel as the fig tree. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit the next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Jesus gives a parable to say, that the fig tree analogy is, it's time up. I've been here with these people for three years now. Jesus has been in ministry openly, teaching them about God, about who he is, about what God desires, about what pleases him. And for three years now, still no fruit. 
And Jesus will use the fig tree as an object lesson to, to the disciples to say, time's up. It's over. There should have been fruit by now, but now there's not. What about cursing the fig tree despite it not being the time for fruit? Well, we talked about that in Jesus going to the fig tree early in the year and being able to gain nourishment. So there should be fruit. So hungry Jesus sees a fig tree in the distance, rightly expects to receive fruit, but it's barren. And because it's barren, he curses it and it dies. Now we'll pick that up in just a little bit later on in the section when Peter revisits it. But for now, what lesson is Jesus teaching us about this fig tree? Yes, it talks about Israel, but what is going on? What is happening here. And, and here's a really great point for us and for everybody. But Jesus, as this winnowing king able to discern all the heart motives involved, means this for you and me, that Jesus knows why you do what you do. Sees to the bottom. He knows why you came here this morning. Was it simply out of a re- religious ritual, just a rite? Well, it's Sunday morning. I guess we go to church or even serving here this morning? Is it because you don't want to get an email about not serving, and so you have to, have to do it just because it's obligation to you? Jesus knows the heart motive for everything that you do. And Jesus knows the heart motive for all these people. Going to the temple the night before, he sees everything that's happening, and it is abominable to him. It's not true worship. It's not done out of faith. So having real faith in God, what it means to have faith in God means knowing Him as He is, and knowing Him as He is means that He's King, and He knows the deepest parts of you. And that's not the only thing that we see that Jesus teaches here about faith, uh, but in the next section that He's going to do something nobody expects in the temple, and He teaches us something else about God. So, If you want to write it down, the second point for this morning is that having faith in God not only means knowing Him as He is, not as you think He is, as He really is, but also having like passions. So we'll pick up in Mark 15, uh, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Again, Jesus comes in, blowing everyone's expectations. This is not what the disciples, I'm sure, thought should have happened. What you would expect Jesus to do, going to the temple, setting himself up as king, maybe he's going to take it a little slow. Maybe he's just going to grease the religious wheels to try to get people, the right people in his cabinet. But he doesn't do it. He comes in and he starts flipping tables and knocking chairs over. And there is havoc. Now, this is a little bit of a a difficult thing for us to understand being so many thousands of years removed and cultures removed, Um, but there's a lot going on in this temple complex I think we need to understand. The first thing about having like passions we see in Jesus is he's passionate about social injustice. He does not like it. He despises social injustice. What kind of injustice is going on? What happened the night before when Jesus goes to the temple and sees everything that's happened? Well, one of the things that's happening is a lot of extortion, buying and selling. 
So if, if you can imagine, when you enter the temple complex, you would see, as you go through the doors, thousands of people, certainly at this time of year. People are coming from all over the empire to come at the high holy week of Passover. Thousands of people everywhere. Not only people, animals. It wouldn't only be people that you saw. You would smell all sorts of smells. Thousands, thousands of animals in here. Pigeons, goats, lambs, oxen, all sorts of things. And Jesus, looking into this crowd, sees some wickedness that is going on, some deep hypocrisy. There are a number of courts in this temple complex, and uh, just for a brief history lesson, if you'll forgive me, I provided a slide. Let's see if it pops up. Uh, this is a temp- the temple complex on the whole. At the very center, you see the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelled. Only the great high priest could go in once a year to offer sacrifice. Just outside of that, you see the, the area where it's the court for the men, the Israelite men where they could come and worship God. And outside of that, the court for the women. And that huge area you see all around the temple complex is the court of the Gentiles. This is what Jesus saw when he walked in. 35 acres of property filled with animals and people. And as he comes in, he sees not just the the huge display of it that he saw undoubtedly growing up every year going to Passover, every year. But this time when he goes in, he's coming to make judgment. He's coming to set things right. And what he sees is injustice all over the place. People coming to worship God and doing it with the wrong reasons. What kind of injustice was there here? Well, if you're coming to worship God, one of the things you have to do is bring something, an offering. Something to pay with blood for your sin. And you had a couple options that you could do with that. Either you could, you could bring it all the way with, with you from out of town. It's really kind of a vacation option for us. Do we bring everything in the car or do we just pay for it when we get there? Do we try to camp out or do we just pay for the hotel? Everybody would bring either what they had to offer, sheep, pigeons, oxen, or they would have to buy it when they got there. Now, the the injustice that's set up here is you really didn't have an option. You really had to pay the price because if you brought it, the priest could say, no, it's not clean enough. We can't use that. And then you have to pay. What would you have to pay? You'd have to pay... 10 to 16 times what the normal value was for something. Jesus coming in, seeing this, people getting ripped off all over the place because of this religious hypocrisy. So practically, just to put that into perspective for you, uh, Google tells me it costs about $250 for a sheep. I don't know. We probably have people with better ideas about that around here because it's magnolia. But... um, 250 bucks. If you're going to the temple to offer that thing, you're looking at $2,500, maybe $4,000 instead. Or if you didn't meet that tax bracket, you're probably looking at, instead of $50 for a pigeon, $500 or $800. Exorbitant price gouging. People don't have an option. This is what they have to do if they want to worship God. And uh, I've had the ability to travel some in my life, different holy sites in the world, 
and uh, it's been really enjoyable. But one of them was Kathmandu, Nepal. And when I was in Nepal, uh, they have a tremendous temple in Boda uh, for Buddha where you go to pray, and there's people everywhere, and you're walking all around it. Kind of similar, the sights, the smells, everything assaults you. Uh, and one of the things you have to do when you go there is you have to pay a tax, religious tax, just for being there. And uh, if, that is if you're not fast enough to squeak by, and, uh, which I try sometimes. And when you pay this tax, you can only pay it in rupees, which is the national uh, currency. And so that means you're going to have to get money exchanged. Well, uh, also, this was done in the temple. You come from a different part of the empire using different currency, you've got to have the exchange rate going. Uh, and for me, I remember being in Nepal at this temple, and I needed an exchange rate to get in to pray. I was really praying to God, not to Buddha, but um, to, to have to get in, just so, in case you're worried about me praying to Buddha at the temple. Um, so having to pay to get in and exchange the currency. And when I did that, uh, this one time, I mean, you feel so vulnerable being in another culture. You don't know how much things cost. You don't know how to speak the language. You know you're going to get taken advantage of, no problem. And um, so I exchanged the currency for what I thought was the correct rate, and I looked up on the wall, and here it is, three times lower, the official exchange rate than I just paid my money for. Um, and this sense of injustice that took over me was palpable. Uh, I have a very strong sense of justice, personally. Um, I have to kind of keep it down sometimes. Uh, or do something crazy, either one. But uh, at, at this moment, I, I felt it. I sensed that this is wrong, and I can't do a thing about it. I cannot keep this from happening, and I just have to go along with it. And this is certainly what it was like in the temple, day in and day out, injustice. But it wasn't simply injustice that's happening. It's injustice that's a barrier for the nation's. This is what we see in, in Mark eleven seventeen, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, Jesus saying, Is it not written in Holy Scripture that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. What we see about Jesus is that the first thing is that he doesn't just say God's house. That would be true. But even more true, he says, My house. I personally take offense at this. Jesus is setting himself up as God, saying, this is my house, and you have made it a den of robbers. There's a serious sickness, a cancer, a problem going on here at the heart of the nation. If you looked at the nation of Israel and all their religiosity, you would look to one place to see how it was going, and that is the temple. If it's going wrong in the temple, it is going wrong in the nation. And this is the heart of the problem that Jesus addresses. It's not simply injustice for people getting ripped off. There's a greater, deeper issue going on here. Jesus is upset because he says, this is my house, and you're preventing the nations from worshiping me. The extortion that is going on here is related to worship, related to faith. And I think Jesus had in mind a number of things, certainly what he quotes there, from the Old Testament about it being his house, but also Habakkuk 2.14, which is a refrain throughout the Old Testament. As he says, for the earth, God says, the earth, whole earth, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas. 
That is a way of saying that the Holy of Holies, this place where God dwells, His presence rests, where no man can enter except one with blood, will fill the earth. Every part of the earth, everyone will experience the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the water covers the sea. Way of saying complete submersion. There is no place in which God's rule and reign does not exist and His presence is not felt. This is what Jesus is passionate about. When He explains this passage, He's explaining that the real issue going on is a lack of faith, a lack of worship. So we see that Jesus... That having faith in God not only means knowing Jesus is king, but it also means knowing that Jesus' desire is for the nations to worship him. Now, how did this affect the nations besides just being ripped off? Israel has a job description in the Old Testament. That job description is very simple. Be holy as I am holy. The purpose of that job description is that the nations would see Israel and say, that's God. That's what he looks like. That's how he acts. That's how he talks. And all through the Old Testament, Israel continually fails at this. Even though they are the image bearers, the the ones to represent God, that all of creation will look to see what God is like, they fail utterly. In Isaiah 49, 6, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. This is where you see God is in Israel. But it doesn't happen that way. Keep reading Mark 18, verse 18. The chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. And they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. You see a crazy irony here. The chief priests, the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, all these religious people, they're seriously ticked off at Jesus because he's shutting the temple down. He's stopping their commerce. He's messing with their religious rhythms. And furthermore, he's getting all the attention. And the people actually listen to him. They're actually doing what he says. When he walks through 35 acres of tables and chairs, knocking stuff over, no one stops him. They could have, but they were afraid of the crowd. Do you remember when Jesus was just with the fig tree over at Bethage in Bethany? The irony is this place is called the house of figs. And you say, John, that's amazing. I say, I know. I know. It is amazing. The power is lost on us, but for the disciples, they should have known This is the house of figs. If you go anywhere in the world for figs, this is where you want to be. Just to the east of Jerusalem, on the outside, Bethage and Bethany rest. And that is the place fig trees are as abundant as pine trees here are, or oak trees. They're everywhere. And Jesus sees a fig tree in the house of figs. He looks for fruit, and there's nothing. It's unbelievable. This should be the place where the greatest fruit is, And where the most fruit is, and it's not the case. The irony here is that the very people who should be promoting God's holiness and bringing the nations to worship Him, enabling the nations to worship God, are the very people that are preventing that from happening. 
You see, in the temple complex, in the court of the Gentiles, this place was huge, and it was huge so that the nations could come and worship God. But the religious leaders of the day prevented that because you're not going to go worship when it costs you $4,000. I mean, seriously, how many of you this morning, if you had to sign off a tithe check of $4,000 would come in? Would it cost that much to you? Or even less, $2,500. Would you do that? It's the same thing for these people. The nations would not come and worship God because of the exorbitant prices the religious leaders were putting on top of it. And so there's serious application for us here as well. Having faith in God means knowing Him as He is and being passionate about social justice and missions. Are you passionate about keeping people safe and sound? Or are you only concerned when it affects your doorstep? Do you hate social injustice when it affects others or only your class? It's a big issue going on today. Is it only your little cultural group that you care about? Or is it all sorts of other cultures? Refugees. Are you passionate about other people's rights and privileges? Or do you really not care at all? But if it was you, I guarantee you would care. This is our own hypocrisy. See, we're not the only, the, the religious leaders are not the only ones who struggle with hypocrisy. It's us too. How many times have you been driving and you see some maniacal person driving on the lanes and you think, I'm just going to slow them down a little bit. They're so dangerous, I have to put a stop to this. They're, they're going to hurt somebody, so I'm just going to really tick them off and get right in front of them just to control them and let them sit back there. Maybe I'll slow down five miles. It's the same sort of thing. We have this hypocrisy in us that's unbelievable. What about politically? Oh, those liberals, they are so crazy, we have to bomb them all. How intolerant of them. When at the same time, aren't you demonstrating intolerance? Or what about in our own little church community with hospitality? Man, I just really wish somebody would take me to their home. I, I wish somebody had me over for dinner. I wish somebody would disciple me. Are you doing that for other people? Are you being gracious with other people? Are you looking to have people over at your house or teach them about Christ? You see, we all struggle with this hypocrisy problem, this root problem that is opposed to faith. And it's easy for us to look at Israel and say, well, failures. But wouldn't you and I do the same thing if we were in their place? God chose the nation of Israel, he says in Deuteronomy, because they were not a people. It means not valuable. Nobody even knew them. They're so small, they're totally obscure. He said, I chose you because of that. Because in that situation, I made great. But if we were them, we would do the same thing. We certainly all do the same thing. Or let me ask you, are you passionate about the nations coming to worship Jesus? Have you been giving to that? That nations would go off. Do you share that? When's the last time you shared the gospel? It might be the same thing like jacking up the prices to keep from the nations from knowing who Jesus is. You have the knowledge. 
Maybe you're just not sharing. Do you serve? Man, I wish we had more people to serve in the church. I wish somebody else would serve. Are you serving? What about tithing? Money always gets so close to the heart. If you were in trouble, if you are in distress, would you want someone to take care of you financially, provide means for you? Of course you would. But do you do that in the church? Do you support, do you fund this mission that sends out missionaries to all the nations or even here that the proclamation of the gospel this Sunday morning would go out to the nations that live here? There's all sorts of application for us in this hypocrisy. So we see that knowing God, that having faith in God means knowing Him as He is, who's King, who knows you, and it means supporting the mission of God, being passionate about social justice. But it also means something else. And we'll keep reading in Mark, Mark verse 20. And they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered and said, have faith in God. Jesus will bring up another issue here of what it means to have faith in God. It also means believing in his forgiveness. Peter is always the blabbermouth, right? He's the guy to, to get all the attention, to mess up. Everyone's just kind of like, yeah, that's Peter. So I'm sure walking with the disciples... They heard this, and some of them probably turned around. They're like, there he goes again. Peter did it. And uh, Jesus' response, which seems innocent. Peter's response seems innocent. Jesus' response to it is to say, have faith in God. It seems terse. But Jesus responds, and he answered them. You know, there's different ways in writing to communicate to different people in Greek. Uh, you use a certain word to communicate, not just to one person, but everybody. And that's what's used on, used at this place. Jesus answered them. This is, a, this is a lesson still for all of you, all the disciples. Have faith in God. Jesus, in his mind, somehow is connecting a fig tree, temple cleansing and worship, false religion, all with faith. So on Tuesday morning, as they're walking out in the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, Peter notices this fig tree, and Jesus responds unpredictably. And Peter, in this type of situation, has to learn what real faith is. Jesus connects hypocrisy with this fundamental problem to believe, as God deserves. Keep reading in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and doubt, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus uses a common, common phrase, a common understanding in Jewish literature, which is to say, take the biggest thing and throw it in the biggest thing, and that's how impossible it is. So he takes a mountain. What's heavier in Jewish thought than a mountain? Throw it into the sea. What's more tumultuous than the sea? Jesus is saying, the, the, the biggest impossibility that you can imagine. Imagine that. Think about it. And that is the sort of thing that God can do. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Jesus' response here can be a little bit difficult for us. As he's talking about prayer, what's the last thing he just said about prayer in the temple complex? He's passionate about it because it's his house. This is a place where the nations are supposed to come and pray. Jesus says whatever you ask for in prayer, but he seems to have in mind a certain thing, forgiveness of sins. You see, at this time of week in Passover, in the Jewish culture, at the temple, you'd have to sacrifice a lot of animals. You'd have to pay a lot of blood to get rid of sin. uh, 255,000 lambs or sheep were sacrificed in a week, Josephus tells us, Jewish historian who lived at the time. 255,000 lambs were sacrificed. That is a lot of blood. What could pay for sin but blood? But even in this we see, in the hypocrisy going on, it doesn't cover it. It can't handle it. The prayer that Jesus is talking about that is so hard to believe isn't about asking for a new boat. Not just what God can give you. Or even something something better, like healing from sickness. It's far more powerful than that. Jesus, when Jesus comes and he, he blows the expectation of everybody around, saying, you know, I'm not just a temporary king. I'm the eternal king. So he does with faith. And he says, it is not just making you healthy or wealthy that I came here for. It's to make you eternally rich in God. It's to give you life, to remove this hypocrisy. The kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about is a prayer of forgiveness of sins in this context. And it's about hypocrisy. And we also see this by the next verse. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is a little bit different than we think about forgiveness. What Jesus says is, you forgive other people so that God will forgive you. That's contrary to how we often think about forgiveness. But it's not for, for Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus thinks about forgiveness, he says the, the most impossible situation you can imagine, the mountain being thrown into the sea, is this, that you could be forgiven of your hypocrisy, that you could be forgiven of your sin. It's amazing. It's not you just having a nice life. It's all the injustices you've done or ever will do being paid for and you not paying for them. Unbelievable. So what does Jesus say by this? You know, on the the night that he was betrayed, he went out and he had an unjust trial and he was accused of a couple things that night unjustly. One, that he was going to destroy the temple. He said he was going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days. And the other was that he was God. So they crucified him. What Jesus is doing here in relation to faith is he's saying the most impossible thing is that you could be forgiven of your sin. There's only one way that happens. Only one way. The temple the sacrificial system that you're used to, 
It is inadequate. It will not pay for your sin. What you need is a different temple. You need a different sacrificial system. And this is what Jesus comes to do. And this is why Mark moves so quickly to the cross in his gospel. The core problem that we have is a lack of faith in God. And Mark will come here and say that really having faith in God, what it means is knowing Jesus as he is. Not that you think he is, as he is. He knows you to the bottom. But also having like passions. That he's passionate about social injustice. He's passionate about the nations coming to him in prayer. He wants to forgive. And also, that his, his forgiveness, it has to be believed on, but it only happens in Christ. So this morning, for you, I ask you, just because you have experienced some kind of hypocritical behavior against you, does that mean you're off the hook from forgiving? Not in Jesus' mind. In order to be forgiven by God, you need to forgive. And that is the evidence, that is the fruit. When Jesus comes to that fig tree of your life looking for fruit, what's he going to find? He better find forgiveness. Because that signals a new creation. Not something that's dead and dying inside and barren, but something that's different. So a lot of people have issues with Christians being hypocritical. And I'd have to say yes, absolutely. Christians are horribly hypocritical people but they're the only people who can change. People who believe in Jesus, who believe in his forgiveness for their sins, are the only people that can actually change and become less hypocritical. Why? Because the only non-hypocritical person died in their place. So for you this morning, if you're overwhelmed with guilt about something, as often happens reading through the Bible, hearing this, the Holy Spirit often, often brings things up to your heart that you say, yeah, I shouldn't have done that or that's a problem. Will you leave it there or will you take it by faith to repent and say, God, help me make it right? Or maybe just people doing bad things to you. Do you, do you just hold on to it? You can't make them pay by getting back at them necessarily, but you can just hate them for the rest of your life. You can hold on to bitterness and anger. Having faith in God means knowing Him as King, being passionate about the nations worshiping Him, and believing His forgiveness in Christ. Will you exercise that faith this morning? This is what Jesus is looking for. This is the lesson He's trying to teach His disciples. It's only faith that pleases God.